Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. This week, how a snooze boosts your learning power, encouraging news about stem cell treatment for Parkinson's disease, and how koalas keep their cool by being tree huggers. Plus, freeze-dried blood. We'll be discussing how scientists are working on this transfusion breakthrough and other ways to protect and store microbes and even enzymes in washing powders to make them last longer. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First, could this... Well, could this help boost your learning power? We've all heard the phrase sleep on it, and there are many anecdotes from people such as students and musicians who find that getting a good night's sleep after studying or practising helps with learning. But what's going on in the brain? Its secrets are now revealed in research from scientists in America and China, showing that during sleep, nerve cells or neurons in the brain grow new connections called dendritic spines that help with learning. Peter Oliver from Oxford University explains what's going on in our brains as we visit the land of Nod. The brain is very active when we're asleep and that's really the first point. So when we're asleep it's not not like the brain switched off, it's firing all the time, making new contacts. And these new contacts the brain makes during the night, how the cells connect to one another, that's often called memory consolidation. Okay, The idea is that when we're asleep the brain is active, if you like, it's replaying events that have happened during the day. And this will help us remember things for the future, both the next day and also also longer term. OK, so this is memory consolidation. So this is a fairly new topic and a slightly controversial topic. Um, the evidence for memory consolidation is, is quite new in the field and relies on very complex experiments. But it's certainly true. There's lots of evidence that sleep is a very active process. Sleep's really important for our brains and it has a really useful function. And these new connections made when we're asleep are really important for us. OK, that's through the background behind it. So what have the researchers done in this paper? So what they've done is they've tried to understand a bit more about the structural elements in the brain that change when somebody's carried out a task. And this, this is actually using mice. So the mice have been trained on a simple, what's called a motor task, so a simple movement task. Uh, they were taught to walk on a rotating rod. So it's a bit like a toilet roll holder on, connected to a, to a motor and that rotates slowly. And this allows the mice to walk along. Very simple, very simple task. But obviously, as they're doing the task, the brain is having to learn the task and make new connections. And they showed that the brain was actually changing its structure. So very subtle changes in a very small um, group of, of new cells in the brain, some neurons in the brain were changing. And then what they did is they let the mice have a normal night's sleep and they looked to see what happened the next day after a normal night's sleep. And what they found 
is that these particular structural changes were still there after they'd had a normal night's sleep. So the fact that the neurons had, had been firing when they were asleep was promoting these new very small and subtle but important structural changes in these neurons. So these are like little fingers that help the nerve cells talk to each other? Exactly right. So this is absolutely crucial. So as, as you know, the brain is very, very complex and there's probably 100 billion neurons in, in, in a human brain and it's incredibly interconnected. So many neurons are connected to many, many others. It's a bit like you're standing in a large crowd and you decided to hold hands with the person next to you. You have to put your hand out first to do that and then that person will put their hand out and then, you, then you'll hold hands. Then you might do that to someone else and these, these are the way the connections are made in the brains. So if you like, a big crowd of people all holding hands in different combinations to allow, uh, to allow people to communicate. That's really what happens in the brain. So the important thing with this study is that they showed that having a normal night's sleep actually promotes these new connections in the brain and these new structures, these new connections are maintained for several days later and that's really the key thing. And I think why this is important is because it's now shown in real detail how flexible and how new um, new structural changes occur during sleep and how that could affect memory in the future. How do they know it was definitely sleep that was doing this? So what they did to try to control for sleep is they actually carried out some sleep deprivation experiments this is where they, they will actually make sure that the mice don't sleep, sleep normally, they keep them awake and then carried out experiments in parallel. And what they showed that, that there's actually a reduction in the amount of the spine formation or reduction in the, the structural changes in the brain when the mice had had disturbed sleep. So there's definitely a strong link then between the quality of sleep, the type of sleep you, that, that these mice were getting and also the, the amount of these of increase in these dendritic spines that are occurring overnight. So there's definitely a strong link between the type of sleep, the quality of sleep, and also this, this new um, structural changes in the brain. So the idea is the better sleep you have, the longer sleep you have, and the more sleep you have in what's called the deep sleep or slow wave sleep, this is more likely to allow new connections in the brain to occur. Now, obviously, when a story like this hits the headlines, people are like, oh, is this relevant to humans? These studies have been done in mice. Do you think they are going to be relevant to humans? Yes, certainly. So certainly the, the basic, what we know about the firing of the brain during sleep is very similar in most mammals. Um, the structures of the brain looked at in this particular study are, are very similar to those found in humans. So there's a direct correlation between the structures that are being examined. Certainly uh, rodent sleep is very similar to human sleep in terms of the type of sleep they get. The different phases of sleep are very similar. So although mice are nocturnal, um, compared to humans mostly being living during the daytime, the daytime hours, there's lots of direct parallels with humans. And certainly we know from lots of work that having good night's sleep is very important for humans both for their physical health but also for their mental health and for the formation of new memories. So certainly this has direct um, very important implications for, for humans, both in disease situations but also in just normal daily lives. So, for example, I'm a musician, so if I was trying to learn a piece, I should, you know, do some practice and then sleep on it and then do a bit more on that and that would be better than just kind of keeping going on it. I think, I think that's, that's, that's kind of what this, this kind of work is pointing towards. I think there's a long way to go to really correlate directly between a physical activity one day, a good night's sleep and improving your performance the next day on, on very complex tasks. But certainly this data shows that a very simple task can actually be um, relate directly to, to changes in the brain which might help you remember things in the future. Certainly with the World Cup coming up, if the England team are practicing penalties every day, as apparently they are, as I heard from Stephen Gerrard today, and then they sleep, sleep really well and practice penalties the next day, and then sleep really well the next day it doesn't really guarantee they'll score when against Italy or one of the other teams in the future but certainly I hope the, I hope the team is sleeping well this week Peter Oliver from Oxford University with some timely advice for our boys in Brazil Good luck to them. And we stay in the brain for some news about Parkinson's disease. This is the degenerative brain disorder, which is characterised by shaking tremors and also difficulty moving. The boxing great Muhammad Ali has a form of this condition. There's currently no cure for Parkinson's, but 20 years ago, doctors took the radical step of trying to treat the disease by injecting new nerve cells into patients' brains. 
The technique was controversial because the cells they used were from human fetuses, which came from elective abortions. Now, a research paper published this week indicates the technique was nonetheless very successful, and it means that doctors may now be able to use these new methods, where the cells come instead from the patients themselves rather than from abortions, to repair brains in this way. Harvard's Ola Isaacson is one of the pioneers of this research and also the author of a new study. Parkinson's disease... What happens in the brain is that a particular group of neurons uh, that are called dopamine neurons, and you start off at birth with about a million in each side of your brain, they will degenerate over time. And the brain compensates for that uh, for many years usually. And when you have lost about 70% of those dopamine neurons, it will be very difficult for the brain to initiate a movement. So Parkinson's disease is primarily seen as a movement disorder. There is also usually a shaking tremor and a rigidity in the muscle. So how do people think we should be treating Parkinson's disease? What do we think is the best way of overcoming the problem? It was clear quite early, many years ago in fact, that if you added dopamine or a substance that can make dopamine, that people could start moving better again. But it became apparent that after about 5 to 10 years, those drugs usually lost their efficacy. And so several of us many years ago started thinking about ideas which were more radical at the time, which was to re-implant those nerve cells that were lost. And the step is quite conceptually new in that this paper we're publishing suggests that actually in the future we'll be able to repair circuits, not just by providing chemicals, but by providing new cells. And the cells that you're seeking to put into the brain, where are they coming from? Well, this study is actually very important because it used a prototype of what we're going to do in the future with stem cells. In this particular study that actually started 15, 16 years ago in Canada, we went along to study transplanting cells from elective abortions. And to do that, almost six fetuses had to be dissected and a little, little piece of the midbrain where these newborn nerve cells are, it's about a cubic millimeter they were then dissociated into a liquid and injected back into the patient's brain. Now, the reason I call that a prototype is that that's a very uh, difficult process to do indeed and by some considered unethical. The idea being that these fetal cells, when you put them in, they can, what, wire themselves in and turn into dopamine-producing nerve cells, helping to make up some of the deficit that the patient's brain previously was suffering from. That's exactly right, Chris. The work that's been actually occurring over the last two decades confirmed that. And this paper is, however, very important because it establishes that the cells remain very healthy in our study here up to 14 years after implantation, which actually coincides with um, the longevity of function, which is even more important to the patient. So current studies indicate that one set of implanted neurons can work for up to at least 20 years and these patients actually have no use for drugs anymore and uh, therefore it's quite remarkable. So how did you actually do the study? Did you have to go and get post-mortem tissue from people who had one of your transplants but have now unfortunately died and asked, has the transplant survived in these people? Yes. This study, which commenced many years ago, has had, of course, uh, 20 years ago, have had patients that have died over time, uh, obviously by different uh, reasons than the transplants. For example, heart disease is common. 
And we have obtained in each one of those cases the brain for post-mortem studies. And so we've been fortunate to be able to study these brains in great detail. And what are the implications of this study? You've looked in these brains, you've seen that the cells that you put in 14 to 20 years ago appear to be surviving for that long. Why is this important? Well, it's very important because Parkinsonian patients will not be receiving fetal cells in the future by uh, any stretch of the imagination. Over the last three or four years, we've been able to produce the very same dopamine neurons we had obtained by elective abortion by reprogramming skin cells from patients and then making those cells into the equivalent of a stem cell. And we were able to show that the dopamine neurons that had died in Parkinson's disease could be generated in a dish. So, in other words, the very importance of this study is that it lays a foundation for us to now pursue the same cell by transplantation that we can now obtain in a dish. And that would allow us to scale up to a degree that maybe cell therapy, if it turns out to be effective in clinical trials, would be a real alternative to the current methods that the patients have for this very terrible disease. Ola Isaacson with some very good news for Parkinson's sufferers and he published that work this week in Cell Reports. It's interesting, isn't it? Because 20 years ago, I remember those trials going on and it just goes to show how long the research cycle is between us doing something and then us finding out what the implications and outcomes really are. Absolutely, and it's incredible how stem cell technology has changed in that intervening time, even in just the past five years. So I think it will be really interesting to maybe revisit this, maybe if we're still broadcasting in 20 years' time, and see where the the new crop of stem cell therapies have gone with this. Because like you say, everyone thought at the time the only way we were going to be able to do this was to use fetal tissue, and the idea of taking a skin cell from an adult and being able to reprogram it to turn it into... a nerve cell so you'd get your own cells back. People thought you were mad if you said that that was even feasible. They didn't think it would be possible to do. And then certainly now it is, but like with Oled's research, it takes you 20 years to find out how well they worked. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Kat Arney. This week, Alexander Shulgin, the so-called godfather of ecstasy, died peacefully in his sleep. The 88-year-old is best known for introducing MDMA, the active molecule in the drug ecstasy, to psychologists in the 1970s and also synthesised and tested over 200 other psychoactive substances during his lifetime. Here is your quickfire science on ecstasy with Georgia Mills and Ginny Smith. Ecstasy is known chemically as MDMA, which is an abbreviation for methamphetamine. When taken, it produces feelings of euphoria and a sense of intimacy with others. In some cases, it can also produce hallucinations. However, in some people, it can induce panic attacks, confusion and paranoia. MDMA increases the release of at least three chemicals in the brain known as neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine and noradrenaline. Serotonin plays a role in regulating mood, amongst other things, and this is probably the reason for ecstasy's mood-enhancing effects. Users often experience a come-down after use. Serotonin is slow to be replenished after large amounts have been released by the drug. This means that as the effects wear off, serotonin levels dip below normal, causing feelings of depression. Prolonged use can cause the serotonin receptors to become less sensitive as they try to counteract the unnaturally huge releases of the neurotransmitter that are bombarding them on a regular basis. This can cause long periods of depression in people who are predisposed to it, even after they stop taking the drug. 
If you're taking antidepressants known as SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, such as Prozac, you won't feel the effects of MDMA. This is because the antidepressants block the MDMA's route into the nerve cell, so it can't cause the release of serotonin. It has been suggested that long-term usage could damage nerve cells, particularly in the hippocampus, which is important for memory. But there's still debate over whether this is specifically due to the ecstasy use. One of the biggest dangers from taking the drug, however, is a difficulty in knowing that it is pure. Pills are often cut with other substances, ranging from caffeine to cocaine, so you can never be quite sure what you are taking. In the 1970s, ecstasy was trialled for use in therapy, although it never really took off. More recently, it has been suggested as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, allowing patients to confront their fearful memories while feeling calm and relaxed thanks to the drug. George Mills and Ginny Smith on ecstasy there. Not literally, obviously. And you can get hold of all our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website. That's thenakedscientist.com, Quickfire Science. Thanks, Kat. Alongside the kangaroo, koalas are one of Australia's iconic animals. People call them koala bears, but they're not really bears. They're actually marsupials, and they live in and exclusively the leaves of eucalyptus trees. They also hug the trunks of their host trees very tightly, but this is not to help them hang on. Using infrared cameras, scientists at the University of Melbourne have found that they actually do it to keep cool as Victoria Gill explains. This is about koalas controlling their body temperature. I mean, you might remember some of the news stories about the extreme heatwave that they had in Australia, um, and particularly in, in Queensland and South Australia last year or earlier this year in our, our winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and this is about them hugging trees to actually cool down their bodies. So these researchers were studying koalas um, out in a, in a sanctuary and they were observing their behaviour to see how they regulate their body temperature because in these extreme environments that's very important for their survival and they noticed that in the summers on very very hot days they would come further down into the trees and press themselves right up against the really thick parts of the trees and this was a bit puzzling because they the researchers assumed that they would sort of open up their bodies to to lose heat but they're actually hugging the trees even tighter and when these uh, when this team from the university of melbourne got their hands on a thermal imaging camera they saw exactly what the koalas were doing the tree trunks are much cooler than the air temperature as much as seven degrees cooler than the air temperature and the koalas are actually pressing their bodies wedging their bodies right up against the coolest parts of the tree in order to lose heat that's a big difference in temperature isn't it it is indeed. And, and that's what's important about this study in terms of what it shows about this particular environment. Big trees, and it has to be big trees because they have these very dense trunks that can retain that sort of that temperature difference, that coolness, are very, very important little microclimates for these tree-dwelling animals. And they allow them, very importantly, to lose heat without panting. That's crucial for these animals because they have very little access to water if they're up high in the trees feeding. They can often not get access to water very easily and if they pant they actually evaporate water out of their bodies and lose this water but if they just press their bodies very closely against the tree they can lose heat without losing that precious water. So there's a couple of issues here isn't there that the scale of the trees big trees they're in demand for logging and timber and they're hard to replace and then there's the issue of climate change which is also going to have implications for the temperature and the sorts of plants that will grow so the animals could face a double whammy. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a troubling picture for koalas anyway at the moment, but at least it gives researchers an insight and it gives ecologists and people who make decisions about what areas of landscape to protect specifically for nature reserves and for these animals. It gives them an insight into just how important big trees are and shows that they are actually, they're microclimates in themselves, which are going to be crucial in the future as temperatures increase globally. So it just shows that these big trees are what need protecting for these tree-dwelling animals. Victoria Gill discussing work by Melbourne University's Natalie Briscoe, which was out this week in Biology Letters. Now, have you had a bad day? Yes. Well, maybe you should think twice about posting a miserable status update on social media because you might be bringing all your friends down with you. In a new study, researchers, including Facebook's own data team, have looked at the impact of seeing only positive or negative Facebook updates in people's news feeds to see what kind of impact it had on their mood. Now, it turns out that updates can be surprisingly contagious. To catch the latest, I went to see social psychology researcher Jorina von Zimmermann at University College London. What they did is they used the news feed on Facebook and they manipulated it. Apparently there's an algorithm which sort of, uh, sort of shows the news feed to people depending on what they like and they manipulated this algorithm so that for some people only news feed were displayed with a lot of negative content, so negative emotional words basically, and for another group they did the same thing but with positive emotional words. People seeing really positive stuff in their newsfeed, how did that influence them? They looked at the effects of reading those newsfeed on status updates and they found that the people who had received a lot of positive emotional content through the newsfeed, they actually had more positive status updates. And vice versa for negative ones, I guess. Yes, so exactly the, it worked exactly the other uh, way around as well. Now, this seems quite weird that just reading something, reading positive things from your friends will make you say more positive things on Facebook and vice versa. How does this fit in with what we know about social networks generally? It's surprising that they don't have any other cues, just just merely text. But it's not surprising in the sense that networks have been shown to be spreading behaviour in various kinds of ways, like they've been shown to spread obesity, destructive behaviour violence, anxiety, so the, on the negative side. But then also positive things like happiness. I think there was a study and they found that happiness really spreads over networks and if one person's happy, that can sort of influence other people's moods as well. So you're saying basically if, if my friends are obese, that's going to influence me to become fatter and then if my friends are all kind of happy and thin, then I, I basically need to find some happy, thin friends. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly what, what the research would suggest. And um, just recently, last year, they found that basically people are influenced by three degrees and they called it three degrees of influence. And what it means is that you as a person have an influence on other people by three degrees. So you influence your friends and those friends have friends who you can also influence via your friends and those friends can also influence their friends. So you can influence friends, 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 basically. To me, this seems really interesting that this is almost a whole new way of, of having influence quite a long way away. And people say, well, Facebook, it's just for pictures of your kids or your dog or something. This suggests that there can be real social impacts from social networking. Yeah, and this is sort of what, what the researchers say, that networks are everywhere and they've become bigger and bigger and now they span the entire globe, basically. And um, I think they sometimes talk about global emotional synchrony. So basically they're saying that one event or like one, one emotion that one individual has at one point um, can actually influence the emotions of many, many other people, and especially with things like Facebook that can potentially influence thousands of people. 
Are there any other examples of this kind of uh, contagion going on on Facebook? There's been um, another study done, and they have used rainfall as a measurement. So they checked the status updates of people depending on rainfall and found out that rainfall in, like, decreases mood and makes people quite unhappy. And then what they found was that that will also influence the mood and the quality or like the emotional content of the status updates of the friends of these people who live in cities where it didn't rain. So basically, if it rains in London and I've got a friend in Australia, potentially my mood, like affected by the rainfall here, will also affect them, even though the sun is shining and it's 30 degrees. So in these experiments, the Facebook team kind of manipulated people's news feeds. Do you reckon I should sort of start unfollowing people who just post miserable stuff all the time? Um, yeah, that could definitely be a solution, I think. If you read negative things, then even unconsciously you'll probably be influenced by it. So if you decide to read the happy content, maybe that makes you happier. My personal opinion is that it works, just like that in the real world. If you go into a shop and the shop attendant smiles at you, it makes you happy. If you read something positive on Facebook about somebody who you care about, that will also make you happy. Yorina von Zimmerman, and you can tell us what you think on the Naked Scientist Facebook page. Positive comments only. Absolutely. (laughs) And if you'd like to follow up on the stories we've been discussing, there are references and transcripts for all those news items on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash news. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or find us on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientist. On to our main topic for this week now, which is how we can keep things like drugs, the probiotic good bacteria that you get in yoghurts, and even the enzymes in washing powder in pristine condition until we need them. Scientists are investigating new ways to protect and guard these tiny helpers so that they can last longer and do their job more effectively. One way to do this is to use tools that have evolved naturally already. And the toughest cells in nature are actually spores produced by bacteria. They can lie dormant in the environment for thousands or even millions of years before being reactivated when conditions suit them. We're joined tonight by Graham Christie from the Department of Chemical Engineering and Biotechnology at the University of Cambridge. He's investigating whether nature's toughest exteriors can be made to contain therapeutic proteins that could increase a drug's shelf life exponentially. Hi, Graham. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good evening. So let's start off with the obvious question. What is a spore? Well, most bacteria, you mentioned the the probiotic bacteria earlier, will consume nutrients as they grow. And when the nutrients run out, then essentially they die off or um, they adopt a quiescent or or non-viable state. Spore-forming bacteria, on the other hand, can sense when nutrients are running out and they decide to develop a spore as a survival mechanism. So it's a bit like kind of an egg, I guess, some kind of precious container for their genes. It's more like a seed, I guess, yeah. And what do spores actually look like in sort of molecular terms? What makes a spore a spore? Well, spores from different species can look quite different. They all share the same general ultrastructure in that they have a a spore coat on the outside and then a, a thick cell wall. And the middle of the spore, the spore core, is where the DNA and all the usual cellular proteins are kept. But the um, the spore coat can look quite different in different species. How does it sense when the time is right to come back to life again? Now that's a good question, and and that's something I've been looking at for the last decade or so. Any clues? <laughs> so yeah, um, so spores have receptors that are buried deep on the inside of the spore. And again, different species have different receptors that recognise different molecules. So generally, amino acids 
or good signals. So these are like bits of proteins. Yeah, bits, so of, bits of proteins or sugars or good signals that the spore now finds itself in an environment that's conducive to growth again. And it is staggering how incredibly hardy these things are. Just before the show, you were telling me about some of the incredibly old bacterial spores. How old are the oldest ones that have been found and reinvigorated? That's right. Um, most people will say certainly hundreds, if not thousands of years, they, they'd be able to persist in the environment. But there were papers in Nature and Science maybe 10 or so years ago claiming that they had revived spores from amber deposits and these were supposed to be millions of years old. Now, these seem like incredible little packages for things, very hardy, they can be reactivated. How are you trying to use this incredible natural thing for the benefit of packaging drugs? Tell me about your work. The main focus of our work has always been on spore germination and how they wake up. And more recently, we started thinking about the general spore structure and how it achieves dormancy and environmental protection. And it's when we were working on that, we realised that the spore core is exquisitely designed to store proteins and DNA for long periods. So the aim was, if a spore can preserve a protein for a long time, a spore protein, then can it also be designed to make a therapeutic protein, a drug, and keep this in the spore core for an extended time? Would this be really useful? Because some drugs are sort of small molecules and they're quite stable. This presumably would be for maybe more of the biological drugs that are a bit less stable. Yeah, we're thinking of proteins, antibodies and such like. So how do you get then these proteins, these useful proteins into a bacterial spore to store them? There are different ways of doing this, but I guess we're really focusing on engineering the spores, so it's a form of genetic engineering. We modify the vegetative cell such that when it senses it's running out of nutrients, then we've inserted a gene or a, the information to make an antibody or, or a therapeutic protein and for the spore to make it and direct it to the spore core. So the bugs, they go, oh, I'm starving here, quick, let's pack up everything and this thing that we've just made. Exactly, yeah, and, we've got uh, this, new, this, this new piece of information and, we, and we'll also channel that to the spore core and, and look after it. And is there any mileage in taking some of the proteins that make up the spores and trying to turn them into like little packing cases? Yeah, so some people are quite nervous about spores and the idea of using them in medicine because spores are associated with Clostridium difficile infections and, and anthrax and things like that. But in fact, most spores are fairly harmless and can be used as probiotics. But the, the spore coat itself is made of up to about 100 unique and different proteins. So we can actually express those individually. And we're starting to find out now that they will self-assemble into spheres and little shells that have some of the properties of spores but lack the DNA and the genetic material that people are so scared of, I guess. So that could be a cleaner way of doing it then? Yeah, a much cleaner way. And the challenge is to make those non-viable shells as tough and resilient as the native spore itself. But then you still need to get them to uncoat in the same way because I guess when you're packaging the drugs in regular bacterial spores, when they go into a person, there's loads of sugar and stuff and they go, woohoo! off you go. How would you get these shells to release their cargo? Yeah, so even with the normal spores, there's quite a challenge for them to actually release the protein. So normally when they germinate, they release small molecules, but not things the size of proteins. So one of the challenges we're also looking at is can we actually lyse the spore completely? Can we get it to pop when it germinates <laughs> and to release its payload? But with the shells, we can look at things like changing the pH and all the acidity and the, the alkalinity of the environment. And this causes the shell to expand or, or contract. 
And when it expands, it can actually start to release the payload. So how much more work do you have to do? Because this sounds like it's kind of a cool idea, but mm. how close is it to actually a reality? We've certainly made spores that have got drugs packaged up on the inside. And I think we're probably a year or so away from engineering spores that lice or pop upon germination. But in terms of getting something to market or into clinical trials, we're looking at at least five years. Can this work with any kind of drug? Or will there be certain chemicals that it just won't work for? Yeah, we're, we're finding that it, we're, we're having to take it on a case-by-case basis. So we can't generalise with antibodies. We have to take one particular antibody and see if the spore can actually make it or not. Thanks very much. That's Graham Christie from the University of Cambridge. Now, here in the UK, we can usually get to the shops and buy new drugs if the ones we've got exceed their shelf life. But we go to huge lengths to get vaccinations to remote parts of the developing world, and keeping them refrigerated the whole way is absolutely necessary, and it's called the cold chain. But Krishna Mabubani, who's from the Department of Chemical Engineering and Biotechnology at Cambridge University, has been developing a way to put vaccines into suspended animation so they don't actually need refrigerating. She's with us. Hello, Krishna. Hello. So how are you doing this? Well, we're looking at different methods in which we can ensure that cells are stable when we remove the need to keep them cold. Why do we need to keep things in a constant cold chain when we're trying to ship things away? Why do they go off? Well, it depends what it is we're trying to put through. If you were to imagine milk as a very simple analogy to this, if you took milk from the shelves in the supermarket and left it in your car for a week, it wouldn't quite live up to the shelf life that it says it would. I don't know, if you like cheese, it could be okay. Well, possibly, but they don't smell that grand when it comes out of the milk bottle. (laughs) But in the same way with the vaccines, you know, they're designed and all the tests are always done within a temperature range of two to eight degrees centigrade. So when we're transporting and then delivering them, we need to keep them at that temperature because that's where we understand them. We know that they stay fairly stable. If we change the temperature and increase them, there's a chance, especially for those that are live bacterial vaccines, that they might replicate. And then we'll be giving people a dose that is a little higher than we expect them to be getting. So we're not actually giving them an immune response. We'll be actually giving them the full-blown infection, which, you know, it's not really ideal. Not so good. So how can you get around that? What are you trying to do to surmount the problem? So I'm looking at several different manufacturing processes that we can use that we put the bacterial vaccines through in order to dry them and remove the water out of them. And by removing the water, we put them in a a state of suspended animation. And that allows us to actually maintain the bacterial vaccine in that form without needing to keep them cold. Which bacteria are you doing this for? So I'm working predominantly with a Typhi vaccine, which is an attenuated salmonella-based vaccine. But we've also worked with a variety of E. coli bacteria and other things to show that it also works across the board. So this would stop things like typhoid? Yeah. So when you say works across the board, are you saying that you could also use the bacteria to deliver other kinds of things to stimulate the immune response against things other than just typhoid or, yeah, or other sorts absolutely. of infections? So so how idea, would you do that? Well, the idea is that we can make use of genetically engineered attenuated bacteria so that it would then go through the same mechanism as if it were a platform and deliver a variety of different immune responses to you. So we can actually manufacture a typhi vaccine. You can manufacture, say, for example, something against cholera, something against traveller's disease, 
pretty much whatever we can actually manufacture to put into the strain of bacteria will be able to deliver it in this mechanism. So you would take the microorganism that is the one that you freeze dry as your vaccine, mm-hmm. you'd engineer it to be able to make the antigen, the thing that stimulates the immune response, either for itself or for whatever you wanted to vaccinate Absolutely. against, or maybe even a cocktail of those things. Yeah. And then you're saying you can put these things into this freeze-dried suspended animation state and then ship them. Well, they're actually vacuum-dried rather than freeze-dried. Okay. Similar process. And then the person who is the recipient would just need to eat this yeah, and it would, it would come back pill. to life in their stomach. Absolutely. So what happens? Why doesn't it make them unwell? Well, I can't guarantee that it won't make them unwell at this point because we're still trying to look into how much of a bacterial dose we need to give the patient so that they get the same immune response. Now, we normally give vaccines intramuscularly or through the bloodstream, whereas my vaccines, the way we've designed it, is so that they would be taken orally and you'd get the same immune response through the small intestine where you have, again, immune cells known as payas patches and M cells and you'd get the similar immune response that would happen should you get an intramuscular vaccination. Very neat. So in order to get the bacteria into this suspended animation state, you said you vacuum dry them, you take away the water. Mm -hmm. So tell me how that makes it possible to do what you're doing. Why does that make a difference? The main problem that we tend to have with keeping bacteria in a liquid format is that they tend to carry on going through their regular biochemical reactions. That means that they will take nutrients that are in the liquid, use them up, create toxins within that same liquid as they're respiring or as they're kind of going through their regular day-to-day activities, it also potentially replicate and multiply. And that makes it very difficult to control. And this is where the cold chain comes into it. By slowing down all the biochemical processes, we then have a relative shelf life within which we know they stay at a particular range and it's healthy and capable to be delivered to a person. When we dry it by removing all of the water in the system, we effectively stop these biochemical reactions. Now, bacteria are quite hardy little fellas, and so when you take the water out, they don't die off. They just kind of sit in a nice state where you can just keep hold of them for a little while. Will this work for any bacteria? Um, There's a large chance that it will work for a variety of bacteria, but we don't know which types they would work for. I've managed to try them on a variety, so I've done them on a, a range of probiotic bacteria some E. coli cells as well as a salmonella type of bacteria. So it seems to work fairly well for all of them, but they each have slight different flaws in the way they rehydrate and how well they rehydrate. And once you've put them in this state, what will they tolerate? What sorts of conditions do they survive over for how long? Well, they're quite happy if they go back into their natural conditions. So far, my tests have shown that they've survived quite well on the shelf for about a year, which is not too bad, but I'm sure there's more improvements that can be made. In terms of what they can tolerate, they're not anywhere near as hardy as the spores. Any change in pH, so any acidic conditions, they wouldn't survive very well. So if we're delivering these vaccines, they'd have to be in enterically coated capsules so that they go past the stomach acids. In terms of other conditions, so heavily alkali conditions, they're also pretty all right. But sometimes they get inactivated by the bile acids that we have in our small intestines. So we've managed to manufacture it with a different component to allow it to bypass all of these problems. And unlike Graham's spores, which aren't yet quite at a stage where you can put them in a patient, are you at the stage where you have got something that could go 
into um, a person? They're currently at a preclinical stage. They're nowhere near going into people, but we've definitely got some preclinical trials being carried out by a different company at the moment. Krishna, thank you very much. That's Krishna Mabubani, who will be back in a little while because we're then going to be hearing about her attempts to actually freeze-dry blood, which could come in very handy at the front line in combat situations. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and with Chris Smith. This week we've been talking about protecting the tiny biological entities that help us every day, so we've heard about how spores and freeze-drying can help us to make drugs and vaccines last longer. But what about enzymes or substances we need to protect in harsh environments, like the enzymes in washing powder or even in our stomachs? Alex Routh from the University of Cambridge has developed a new technique to produce protective shells around tiny droplets of water into which these helpers have been mixed. Now, pay attention, here comes the science bit. First, water, containing the thing, the chemical or the enzyme you want to package and protect, is mixed with vegetable oil and a specially designed polymer that will form the protective shells. Shaking this mixture produces millions of tiny water droplets suspended in the oil. Because of its chemical nature, the shell-forming polymer collects around each of the tiny water droplets where they meet or form an interface with the oil, completely encasing them. Adding some alcohol, ethanol in this case, locks the polymer shells in place so the oil can be removed, leaving the encased water droplets, together with whatever was mixed into them at the start. Alex showed Kate Lamble how the technique works at the BP Institute in Cambridge. So what we've been trying to do is trying to protect biological things through harsh environments. So you might think of enzymes in washing liquids or bacteria in probiotic yogurts the stomach is designed to protect us from nasties that we might eat so a lot of bacteria in probiotic yogurts will get killed off in the stomach but if we can make a formulation where more will survive that's got to be a better thing when you start thinking about encapsulation what's the process by which you work out which device you want to go for how do you start thinking about it well we were trying to think how could we encapsulate biological things and quite soon we arrived at the idea of water droplets because biological things are happy in water. So we can put our enzyme or our bacteria into a water droplet and then you want to somehow put a shell around that droplet. And how to put that shell there, we use a technique where we have a huge number of little particles in the water, we make them so that they want to be in the oil. So they will naturally migrate to the oil interface. So they will form the shell on their own, create the capsule, and so protect the enzyme. Can we go and see how it's done? Absolutely. Uh, so we're in the labs of the BP Institute. We're here with uh, Wei Jing Gun, who's one of our postdocs working here, and he's going to show us how he makes what we've called cloidosomes, which are these capsules that we can encapsulate biological entities in. I'm going to use a pipette to pipette 7.6 mils of sunflower oil, just typical Sainsbury or Waitrose sunflower oil. Does the Waitrose sunflower oil give you slightly higher class yeah, of bioencapsulation? Probably, probably a partial <laughs> microcapsule. The interesting thing we found is that we had a Japanese visitor came over and then he tried using Japanese sunflower oil and that didn't work. Why wouldn't was, Japanese sunflower oil it work? Was a different vegetable. So I've pipetted 7.6 mils of sunflower oil. Now I'm adding ethanol. The reason we're doing this is that when the little particles go to the interface, we don't want them to just go to the interface, we want them to stay there irreversibly. How does the ethanol help the particles lock in place? It will change the interaction between the particles, so they will just come together. So when I mix the ethanol and sunflower all together, I start vortexing the solution for like a minute. 
So now you can see slightly cloudy because you get air droplets in, but the ethanol is well dispersed. So after five minutes, you can see there's no more air bubbles in the solution. We've got the vegetable oil and the ethanol, and now we're going to add the water phase with the particles in. So we've got some very sort of, is it slightly thicker white solution going in? It looks like milk, really. Have you made the particles to go in that, or is that something that you've got off the shelf, I uh, suppose? We synthesise these particles ourselves. They're made of uh, polystyrene and another polymer called polybutyl acrylate. So these are acrylic-based particles, exactly the same as you would get when you buy wall paint. And if you want to encapsulate biological stuff, you can put in your yeast. The reason you start with yeast cells is they're the most robust sort of biological thing you can. So it's the first entity to start with. And then we've moved into bacteria and enzymes. I add it in into the sunflower oil, and this time I'm going to vortex it again for about a minute. And we're going to make little water droplets in the oil. So this is just as if I was shaking up a salad dressing or something, it would form the same thing? Just the same as your vinaigrette dressing at home. So once they're mixed, how long do they stay in their encapsulated form? If we're hoping that they'll go into washing powders and things, are they going to stay in their little spheres forever? Uh, Yes, they will stay in there forever because they are bigger than the holes in the capsules, so they can stay there indefinitely. What we found, though, is that that worked great for bacteria, but the enzymes were too small. So when we formed the shell, there were always holes in there, and the enzymes would leak out. So we had to then put another shell around our first shell. And what we did was we put a shell of calcium carbonate around there. In my mind, calcium carbonate limestone is quite bad at surviving acidic environments. Is this the same thing that we'd be using for stomach acid and things like that? For the stomach acid, we found that for bacteria, we didn't need the second shell of calcium carbonate. So we just had the polymer shell was sufficient because the bacteria were larger so they couldn't get through the holes. You're absolutely right that the calcium carbonate will dissolve in acid and we've used that to release some things so you can have a triggered release of your capsule when you put it into acid. As you can see, it's a cloudy solution. But if we look closely, we'd be able to see those individual water droplets which could, if we wanted, contain our biological agent. Yes, if you put yeast in it and you look it under the optical microscope over time, you can see the yeast cells replicating itself. If you're putting something like bacteria inside that and it hasn't got a food source, how long can they remain active? The shell of the capsule is very porous, so we can make food go into the capsules to feed the bacteria and products come out. So you can imagine using these as sort of mini bioreactors where you can hold your bacteria in the side and get products coming out of the droplet. We can see that it's cloudy, certainly cloudier than it was when it was just the oil and the ethanol. Can we see the droplets within it or are they too tiny for us to visibly see? We can certainly put them on a microscope and see the droplets. Fabulous, let's have a look. So we've come over to a very impressive-looking microscope. So it's just coming into view. You can see tens of tiny water droplets, as it would look like on your window pane after it's had a bit of a rain, sort of hundreds of tiny water droplets. Absolutely. And now all we're trying to do is take those water droplets, which are very easy to make, and preserve them by putting these particles at the interface so that the droplets are stable. So when you see the water droplets go down your windscreen when it's raining, they'll merge together and form big water lumps. We want to stop that and so keep them as the water droplets. So we've talked about enzymes in washing powder and good bacteria getting to your gut. What are, are there any future applications that you'd like to get into? The application we'd like to get into would be oral vaccines. So when you have a vaccine, you have to take an injection to get that 
into your bloodstream because your stomach will kill the vaccine. So if you can encapsulate that and get it through the stomach and make it survive that process, that will be a, a huge benefit for people who don't like injections. Alex Routh and Wei Jin Gunn from the BP Institute at the University of Cambridge talking to Kate Lamble. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. So we have ways of protecting proteins and enzymes and bacteria, but what about something infinitely more complicated? Human cells and specifically blood. Krishna Mabubani from Cambridge University is here and after her success drying out bacterial vaccines to make them easier to transport, she thought she'd get her teeth into something far more difficult. So first of all, Krishna, why do you want to freeze-dry blood? We've got blood banks that are pretty accessible. Why do you need to freeze-dry this stuff? Say, for example, you're in the front line of a war zone. You've just gotten a shot in the leg and no medic is going to be able to get to you for a little while. What do you do then? Your chances of survival are suddenly dropping dramatically. Now, if you could imagine that within your pack and your rucksack, you had with you a bag of your own blood powdered and dried down so it would store for quite a decent amount of time and a bag of saline to make sure that you always had something sterile to mix with it. One of your buddies on the force has come on over very quickly, very valiantly to come rescue you, mix these two together and set you up an IV. All of a sudden, your rates of survival have increased dramatically. So that's partly some of the motivation behind why I want to do this. It's also an ability to create a supply chain for red blood cells. Now, while we do have blood banks, we can only store our blood for up to 42 days before we have to pretty much chuck it out. So if you could freeze dry the blood, preserve it in a dried format, Mm -hmm. A, it would take up less space, but it could potentially be stored Indefinitely, or at least for a much longer period of time, so our blood crisis would be solved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this comes into account when we've got big national or international events that take place where we've suddenly got an influx of people coming into the country. When we had the Olympics here, for example, when Brazil is about to have the World Cup, they're going to have a mass influx of people in there, which means they're suddenly going to have to be stockpiling blood products to make sure that they have enough should there be, you know, an emergency scenario. Why can't we do this at the moment for blood? You can do it for bacteria. Why can't you do it for human blood? Blood is a mammalian cell. It's slightly different from bacteria in the sense that they're less hardy. Now, bacterial cells have a cell wall around them, which are quite robust. I always like to say that you can pretty much chuck your bacteria at the wall and it's still going to survive up there. You put any other mammalian cell or any softer cell up against a wall and it's just going to pop and rupture. And that's the problem with red blood cells. They're very sensitive materials. They have to be able to be flexible enough to go through the smallest of your capillaries in order to allow you to get that transfer of oxygen and carbon dioxide in and out of your system. But also the fact that their entire nature is a transfer of gases, which means that membrane on the outside of them that holds them all together has got to be thin enough and simple enough for these gases to just diffuse in and out of very quickly. Otherwise, we'd be struggling to breathe on a regular basis. So that makes them very vulnerable. So you've got a challenge of, of overcoming that vulnerability. So how are you doing it? So we're using a slightly more a conservative method in which we, we dry the cells. So where with the bacteria that we did before, I was saying we use vacuum drying where we effectively mix it up with a surfactant and just put it under pressure and boil the water off. Now what we have to do is freeze the blood down first and then gradually pull it under vacuum and use that. 
to remove the water. So we're actually subliming the water out. We're taking it from the ice phase straight into the vapour phase. We're not actually putting it under a liquid phase at all. So you're putting a chemical in which will get inside the cells and stabilise everything. Well, we're not really putting a chemical in because we have to remember that at some point we're going to be putting these cells back Mm. into another human being. So we're trying to make use of items and components that are quite natural and very easy for us to break down. So I'm using natural sugars as the chemical component to protect our cells from freezing. And those will therefore protect the cells so that they can then tolerate being frozen. Yes. And then once they're frozen, you put the whole thing under a vacuum or a Mm. low pressure and that causes the water molecules to just, for want of a better phrase, evaporate. Absolutely. So what you're doing is basically changing what would be the boiling point of water by putting it under a vacuum. So where normally water would boil off at 100 degrees, we're dropping it down so it would boil off as low as negative 30 degrees. Right. And do the cells actually survive this treatment? At the moment, very few of them. (laughs) Right. Okay. How many? Currently only about two to three percent of my cells survive every one I do. But do you know why they don't survive? Is it just that you need more of these sugars and things to to stabilise them better? Well, so there's a variety of reasons that might be causing them to die. The freezing process itself is quite a stressful scenario. Imagine what it feels like to your fingers and hands when you've kind of rummaged around in the freezer you feel like your fingers are very numb and you sometimes have these things where you feel like you've actually worn the surface of your skin off with freezer burn and this is what's happening is when you freeze things water expands as it freezes and what's happening is that these cells are then expanding because they're mostly made of water and that's causing the cells to rupture as well so the freezing process could be part of the problem the reason we load them with sugar is to actually try and stop the ice crystals from forming in the wrong parts of the cells, causing them to lice as well. And how long do you think it'll be before we actually have an answer to this? Oh, I want it to be in the next few years, really, but I really have no idea. <laughs> well, we wish you luck with it. And when you do crack this nut, do come and tell us. Krishna from Cambridge University, thank you very much. And finally, closing this week's show, Hannah Critchlow has our question of the week. This week, we sink our teeth into this burning question that Tracy wrote in with. Would cremated ashes, human or animal, have any effect on the growth of a plant? We are thinking of starting a business where we put cremated ashes in a pot with a plant and would like to know how this would affect the growth of the plant. So it turns out that burning a body results in ashes that are rich in phosphates, calcium, potassium and sodium. Could these benefit a plant? I went to visit Sally Pettit, head gardener at the beautiful Cambridge University Botanic Gardens. It's a really interesting concept, the idea of adding human ashes to plants to improve growth. All plants ultimately require a balance of what we call macronutrients, which are things like nitrogen and potassium, and also micronutrients such as zinc and carbon and manganese. These all exist in plants in a very, very finely tuned balance. An excess of any one of these individually can have an impact on plant growth. So, for example, calcium will rapidly reduce the supply of nitrogen within a plant, which affects protein and growth and result potentially in a poor yield of plants or fruits. An excess of calcium will also result in a a reduction of the water control and photosynthesis. And this can be apparent in things like browning, scorching and spotting of leaves. Again, with an excess of phosphorus, the fruits will mature early and you'll actually potentially have a, a poor yield of crops because the plant hasn't actually established properly to support a very high yield. Similarly, um, an increase in 
salts or sodium can increase particularly osmotic pressure or the water pressure within a plant and actually ultimately result in dehydration. So potentially the addition of human ash to a plant may in fact be a detrimental effect rather than a positive one. Thanks, Sally. And it turns out that the nutritional content of ashes can vary between individuals, depending on diet, where you live and age. Plus, if mercury or gold fillings feature, traces of these in the ash could be toxic to the plant. Next, we flex our brain power over this. Hi, I'm Staffan Lincoln from Sweden. When we exercise our legs, we feel tired and the muscles burn from lactic acid. Is it the same with brain exercise? If brain fatigue is due to low blood sugar, is there a case to be made for homework candy? So, is there an optimal rate for chomping down sweets whilst learning French? What do you think? And if you can help Hannah, then do drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists or look us up on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientist, to pass on your thoughts. That is it for this week. Thank you very much to our contributors, Alex Routh, Graham Christie and Krishna Mabubani. Thank you to Kate Lamble for production and to Dot Katani for joining me. Next week, we're going to be commemorating the birthday of Dr Alois Alzheimer with a special show all about the disease that he gave his name to, including a computer game that's been created to teach kids why Alzheimer's disease happens and how we might be able to combat it. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.